This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Guest players. Your tradecraft bookshelf. Thoroughly modern minis. And a visit with Circe. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, And the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-o-and-the-number-8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. The gleeful quoting of Monty Python, the smell of fresh-buttered popcorn, the sound of rattling dice tell us that we have once more entered the jovial confines of the gaming hut, and in the gaming hut I see someone that we don't see there all the time. Perhaps it is a girlfriend or boyfriend brought along for a time. Possibly it's a famous game designer or buddy from out of town. Robin, guest players in the gaming hut, besides making them welcome with their share of pizza and Doritos, what else should we be doing? So uh, having a guest player sit in on a session can be a lot of fun if you handle it right. And uh, one of the tricks of this is to see where you are at in what it is that you're playing and also to see what it is that you're uh, running and how uh, well they can be uh, fit into it. But uh, especially if you have an out-of-town guest or someone who's uh, used to be in your group and is uh, in town for a, a brief period of time, it's always fun to kind of have old home week and fit them in. And what they can do in the course of your uh, game uh, depends on what it is that you're running. And 
uh, sort of an F20 or other fight-heavy game, for example. You could just have them, you know, drop in as the guys who are uh, discovered uh, chained up in the first room that you enter and ally with you briefly for the uh, sake of one evenings of uh, exploration and fighting and then can sort of head off on their own without having a big impact on the series to someone who can be kind of dropped in to uh, uh, surprise you or... Uh, and I often find it's useful to give the guest players, in addition to sort of a briefing of what's going on and to pre-prepare them a character, because of course you don't want to have someone have to do a session's worth of character prep in order to play one session of a game. I, I try to sort of take them aside and give them an instruction. So it's like, well, as the session wraps up, I'm going to have you die horribly, or I'm going to have you uh, introduce this uh, crucial plot point that I want brought into play so that they... Uh, have the fun of playing and hanging out, uh, but also you get to sort of use the extra jolt of surprise that you get from having an extra person in the room and kind of for uh, one evening have a confederate or a co-GM, as it were. Yeah, I think in my experience, a guest player who's brought in just explicitly to be a guest, it's better if you give them a specific plot point, and that plot point can be a, a data dump, it can be a, an, an informative death, it can be a data dump in the form of an informative death, or it can just be sort of the same sort of thing that you bring a guest star in on a, on a regular serial just to introduce a little different character mechanic. And I've done it both ways. Uh, John Tynes once sat in on my Unknown Armies game, and he played a reclusive uh, uh, duke in the sense of uh, street mage with some interesting knowledge about the setting and some weird takes on how magic worked. And because it was John Tynes, that that felt really, really good to the players that they were like, yeah, I, I buy that this guy knows about magic. That <laughs> It's weird how much he knows about how this world works. That, 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 that us, the people who in theory are, the, are Chicago's magical infrastructure, didn't know. And so they bought it, and then he had a, he had a great you know, character death uh, being torn to pieces by magical cockroaches uh, underneath the water tower. And so there was a lot of you know, really good, you know, juicy elements in there. But another time I had a player character uh, who'd been in my game many, many times before, and had deserted uh, me and betrayed Chicago by going to MIT, he came back on a vacation to Chicago and sat in on the game session. And so he played a guest star in the Knights Black Agents game. Now, when you say player character, does that mean he was bringing his old uh, character back? No, he, the, he, was, he, was a new, he was an entirely new NPC. Uh, he was not bringing his old character back because he played in a different campaign. But it was the familiarity of seeing him that gave it that sense. It's like if you cast, you know... I don't know, Robert Urich on some, on, on some cop show, and then Robert Urich shows up. A Reed Diamond in the pilot of The Shield. Exactly, and you're like, oh, yeah, there you go. I, I, I get that guy. It's, it, he's that guy. He's our buddy. We remember him from other shows. And it's that sense of familiarity that you can then build on. So I think part of it is, like you say, the story structure that the ringer needs to support, but part of it is also the personality of the ringer and the persona of the ringer and what flavor do they bring that can tell you maybe who to cast them as, as opposed to just, I don't know, there's an anti-paladin, you want to play the anti-paladin? Right. I think my biggest success uh, with this is that you would think that the very first thing that every player thinks when you're bringing in a guest player is they're going to use the new player, or player, in this case players, as uh, a ringers and use it to uh, torque me over. I, I'm going to not be surprised by this. I'm going to... Now, I don't mean torque you over in terms of the GM hosing you, but in terms of the story having a big, fun, unexpected turn that puts you in a sticky but fun position. So it's not that you're uh, fooling the players, it's that the characters undergo a big turn. Well, you would think that the players 
would assume this was going to happen and, and be ready for it. And this was a, a game I was running where it was uh, actually the the HeroQuest two player uh, playtester, one of them. Um, or actually, no, it wasn't. It was a precursor system that I didn't wind up doing anything with. But at any rate, they were playing uh, the heroes of a uh, Greek mythological city-state. And the one thing that they really wanted to avoid, particularly the uh, Minotaur character, who was the voice of reason in the group, the last thing he wanted to do was to be put in charge of the city. Mm. And we'd played uh, for quite a while at this point. And then uh, my uh, friends, uh, Lynn and Rich, uh, Lynn was a former member of the group uh, years before, before she went back to her uh, native England, but she was here on vacation again. And so uh, she and her husband sat in as uh, mysterious people who were immediately accepted as if they had the player character hat on their head. And the players then started to fill them in on the backstory of the entire campaign. And they slowly asked some questions and drew them out. And at this point, the, so the characters were describing how they had developed this long, finally antagonistic relationship with the gods and how they particularly had Zeus mad at them and what they'd done about that. And so they were just laying out all of their secrets, things that they would not normally tell to a, an NPC. They were happily sharing with their friends, Lynn and Rich, who were playing uh, the characters who just showed up. And I don't think they even really noticed that the timing of the episode just became a big clip show with them describing <laughs> everything that had happened. Now, normally you would think this is the most boring possible choice is to simply have the players show up and listen to the existing players, tell them what has happened so far. But they were very carefully drawing them out because I had instructed them beforehand that you are Apollo and Diana in disguise as Apollo and Diana and all the other Greek gods are want to be, and you've been sent by Zeus uh, to find out what's up with them, and to uh, because Zeus had a conflicted relationship with them, uh, you will have to listen to them, find out as much as you can about what they're doing and, and why they betrayed Zeus, and then mete out uh, one reward and one punishment. And so this gave them a game to play within the game, as a game in the sort of improv sense of what's the scene and the dynamic all about. Right. And so they brilliantly got them to reveal everything they had done to Zeus. <laughs> and then <laughs> finally, when it came... I for, now, I forget what the reward was somehow, but the uh, punishment that they meted out at the end was they made the Minotaur the archon of the city. They made him head of the city. The last thing he wanted was to be in a position of political responsibility. Uh, but it was clear that he deserved that for everything that the entire group had done. And so they managed to come in, uh, have fun, hang out with us for a night, and then completely change the direction of the series. Uh, and because it was... Uh, the act of the gods, uh, the group was expecting that the next week when they showed up, that would begin the slow process by which the Minotaur was elected head of the city. But instead, it just began with he was he was on the throne, and uh, they had a whole new set of problems. So it uh, not only gave us a chance to hang out with Lena Rich, but it gave us a big act break that really I think defined the whole series, and that remains one of the most memorable <laughs> moments in that game. Yeah, the 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 no I mean players. I, 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 this is why, I mean, the thing we both always say, trust the players and, and get good players, it, just get, it keeps paying off. The, the notion, the, the, so many players in my experience have done the same thing, where you bring in the guest star for whatever reason, and they're instantly brought into the game in as full a way as the players can think to do so. And that happens so much more often 
than the, the, you know, sort of this, I guess what the stereotypical notion is, is that the new guy shows up and the other guys just kill him and take his stuff over and over and over again. Um, I don't, I mean, that has never happened to me, even back when I was an adole- a badly disciplined adolescent playing Dungeons and Dragons, that never happened with me. But I find that, um, when you bring in a, a, a new player with a, with a specific ringer agenda, as opposed to, um, one where they're a, a guest star in the way that Tynes was or in the way that my buddy Greg was, that when you bring in a character, even if their agenda is wait for the proper moment to betray the other players to the bad guys, the players will play along in recognition that this is a better story. And as you say, surely that is the first thing that all players should suspect, but either they never do or they are really into making the game happen correctly. And I find that it, 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 you know, if you did it every time, then they would be right to start killing new people and taking their belongings. But if you just do it every so often, or when it makes some sense within the overarching drama of the story, I think that it, it, it can pay off, uh, really, really well. And, and the notion of having a play, a, a player whose job it is to continuously think of advantages for themselves turn that skill against the other players is, I mean, it certainly opens up a lot of tactical and story positions. And it, like you say, it gives you a place that you can be surprised and impressed as the GM with uh, how good the bad guys are at stuff. And, you know, it, it may put you, give you a new uh, arrow for your quiver, or it may just present a, a really great story moment. And another thing I think you could maybe, if, if it happens a lot in your games, which I guess it probably never happens a lot in anybody's game that they have guests, but you could sort of... Uh, turn it on its head where you could uh, not only give an instruction to the visiting player uh, that they're to be a ringer and a betrayer, but you can also uh, tell your own group that you already know in advance that the king is sending someone in the guise of a friend to betray you, but you have to play along and get as much information out of them as you can. So you could actually uh, set up a double ringer situation uh, where each of the, the guest player and the regulars both think they have one up on the others and uh, try to maneuver within that uh, context. And the other thing is, you know, some games are going to be easier to do this with, and also uh, some continuing storylines, it's going to be uh, easier or harder to drop uh, a guest player into. If you've got established that the characters are all sort of off in an isolated area doing an expedition, and this is, you know, session two of three sessions that'll be devoted to, you know, exploring an underground volcano, uh, you're going to have to sort of work harder uh, to come up with, you know, uh, underground volcano characters who can exist only in the middle of the thing. And uh, rather than if you're sort of in an ongoing sort of city uh, political negotiation kind of game, it's much easier to drop guest players in just as it's difficult in some environments to drop uh, NPCs in. So you might have to do kind of some thinking and, and to think of the structure of your entire adventure and how, uh, you know, how inexplicably running into somebody in the volcano could have a bigger impact on your whole uh, series than just here's a guy I hang out with for a little while and then he falls in a magma pool. Yeah, the um, that, that is something to keep in mind is that guest stars, there has to be a, a legitimate way to bring them on scene that doesn't vitiate the whole thing. And I think that one possibility you can use if you're not in a, if you, if you're like you say, if you're in a volcano, you can do it as a flashback. You can do it as a dream sequence. You can do it in any of the other ways that do not then make the players say, well, we'll just find a marine commando in our vol- in the volcano next time we're down there because it's full of prisoners being chained up for no reason. And I think that you can, you know, spend a little time thinking about 
the reality of your campaign world that has to continue after the guest star leaves or after the, the your, your your buddy um uh, goes back to Michigan or wherever it is that he that he came to visit you from. And presumably if you know that someone is coming to visit you, you know far enough in advance that you could then foreshadow that character in the preceding session. So mm-hmm. it might be cool to, you know, set up that oh well the the duke is sending an inspector to come with you on your uh on this leg of your journey and uh, you've heard all this stuff about this character and they learn about the character ahead of time and then don't quite meet up with them and then next week that's already set up for them and the uh, guest then drops into that role and so right. it feels could feel like less of a uh, contrivance or it could feel like a cool payoff a surprise that you know oh we found the inspector and it's you know it's Lynn playing the inspector and what's she going to do to us this time the, <laughs> the last time she was Apollo get her and so the uh, another thing that you can do that I've done, and I don't know if this is necessarily you know too obvious, but I'll say it, is if you've got a, a game group in which there's player characters that go unplayed, either because that player never shows up or because they've changed their mind and are playing a, a, one of their other characters in the troop more often, you may have a spare player character lying around, and people may say, how come we don't you know see that guy more often in the game world? If if you have the ringer play that player character who has gone underutilized, that can revitalize it. It might give a slightly different spin. I mean, it almost always gives a slightly different spin on how that player character looks to the other players, and it I think can deepen your game, your campaign world if you allow it to do that. That it's like, oh, good, Green Lantern has finally shown up for something, and look, he's got a whole different tactical attitude. Maybe he was out fighting a war against the. Scrolls or somebody? I don't know. And so that uh, that can sort of provide doorways, if you let it, that you can keep opening even after the guest star is left again. That This is why Green Lantern had to go away for reals this time, or this is why uh, Green Lantern showed up. That you, you Once you're starting to explain a walk-on in ways that make sense within the game world, those answers will then create more questions that you can answer in play. Uh, it would also be fun to have a guest player show up playing a doppelganger of an exi- of a hmm. uh, dead player or a, a major NPC, and you know, probably let the players twig to that ahead of time on the grounds that uh, it's you know foreknowledge is often as fun as a surprise, and then they have to figure out you know they know this isn't their uh, long lost comrade, but uh, can they get information from the doppelganger that will lead them uh, to him? So that could be a, another fun way to go. Well, I think we've uh, provided a lot of different suggestions for the next time uh, somebody's uh, favorite uh, player from the past swings by, so I think it's time for us to swing by our next hut. The pat-down, the retinal scans, and the overwhelming air of high security indicate that we have once more ventured into the rarefied confines of the Tradecraft Hut. And Ken, this week, in response to a request from Rick Jones, uh, you're going to lay out the rudiments of a Tradecraft bookshelf. So, uh, Ken, what are the uh, first books that you want to pick up if you want to start emulating the Height Memorial Library's espionage wing? Well, the Height Memorial Library's espionage ring is uh, remarkably thin on actual tradecraft manuals because it turns out there aren't a lot of them that are 
really good and uh, certainly that are really modern. There, there are, uh, it's almost like they're kept secret. It's almost as if. There's um, a number of memoirs by famous spies that I have. Uh, Alan Dulles has a, has a pretty good memoir about his life as a spy, but even to the extent Dulles is telling the truth as opposed to romanticizing or confabulating things, he's telling about what it's like to have been a spy in World War II, and that's an entirely different sort of because after that he was a desk guy, um, and that's an entirely different sort of gig than being a spy in the Cold War, being a spy in the War on Terror era, and so the 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 skill set is different from being an OSS agent, which is kind of half commando, half bagman, and in the modern era, asset running and working with networks is so much more important than it was back when most of the people who write spy memoirs are uh, talking about it. Occasionally you right, get... Because if, if you know anything contemporary, you can't talk about it yet. Exactly, right. And it, you you occasionally get memoirs of what it's like to be a case officer, but those wind up, a lot of them being memoirs of bureaucratic politics, as opposed to, no, seriously, here's how to run a physicist behind the Iron Curtain. Again, I suspect, because they don't want to give away methods and, and sources. And so they're, they're, when I was researching Knights Black Agents, I found very, very little in terms of practical use. There was a couple of things. There's um, the, the Wikipedia article, believe it or not, on clandestine human operational techniques is pretty uh, thorough, and it's been assembled, I uh, assume, from the same place that I assembled it, which is a ton of bits in spy memoirs and a lot of spy fiction and one or two declassified sources. And if you look at the, re at the references section there, there is one document that I found myself going back to time and again which I'm not going to necessarily provide the URL for, because you guys can get your own NSA files. Thank you very much. But it's an Al-Qaeda tradecraft manual that was confiscated by the MI5 raiding an Al-Qaeda safe house in early 2000 or late 2001. They got that thing. Somehow it got leaked onto the Internet, and then a bunch of people sort of crowdsourced commented on Al-Qaeda's tradecraft, and what was wrong with it, and how it could be improved, and what was outdated about it. And that document was pretty much the best single source that I found that had a real-world connection as opposed to being a, a, a Wikipedia uh, summary. So what, what was the awareness of the people undergoing this process that they might be giving tips to Al-Qaeda? Was that their intention, or... Was it a thought experiment? What's going on I there? I think that it was the nerd thing that when I talk about, you know, Veronica Mars on the internet, no one connected with Veronica Mars will ever read it, and so therefore I can say <laughs> oh, whatever so as an Al-Qaeda doesn't want read to. their comments. And I think it's, yeah, that Al-Qaeda is like, you know, Anne Hathaway. It's like, no, no, it makes us feel too bad to say that they, they say that we are fat and bad at tradecraft. I don't, I don't like this. And so I, I, I don't know what it is, but, you know, I, I always presume that, you know, whatever you are, if you're doing dial up from Damascus, you're not going to be as good at it as, in theory, someone that studied at um, uh, the, the Norfolk or um, uh, well, let's hope. the farm. <laughs> and you're certainly not going to be as good as the Russians. So that's, I guess, nice to know. But the um, but the but that document turned out to be a, a sort of real world tested against reality type document, which is what I was looking for anyone connected with the Anglophone spy world to have written. After I wrote the book, there was a book that I saw and looked at the first half of and put down called Spycraft, The Secret History of the CIA's Spy Techs from Communism to Al-Qaeda, which from the title, and it's by uh, Robert Wallace and H. Keith Milton, from the title I assumed that it was just a history of the technology section of the CIA, which, while fascinating, is almost completely irrelevant to Knight's Black Agents because 
in theory, your burn spies, you don't have the text section there giving you awesome stuff. And we've all seen enough things that we know basically what a, what a tracker looks like, or we know what a, a, a SIM card reader looks like. And they don't need to, you know, make concealable phones out of pens or, or whatever the way that the CIA might. But it turns out that apparently the second half of that book is the closest thing to a modern tradecraft manual that exists by people who are actually at the CIA. And I have not read it myself uh, in any great detail, so I don't know how good it is. But a couple of people did after the after Nice Black Agents came out say, if you look in the back half of that Spycraft book, it's got some actual Spycraft in it. Which, you know, if true, is terrific news, and it's fairly cheap on the internet, so you can look for yourself. I found a lot of sort of more useful information just in really good novels that go into depth about the things that characters have to do. There's a couple of stories of, of novels in, in his early career by Alan Forrest, Night Soldiers and Dark Star, which are both about case officers who run assets and run networks of assets. And both of those very clearly laid out the sorts of things that you had to do to get an asset, the sorts of information you got, sort of the schedule on which they would provide you with data, all the sort of day-to-day lived experience of spycraft that spies know and that you have to put into a novel if you're going to compellingly make the case that our character is a good spy. And so both of those turned out to be really good sources. And then in the in the sort of the old classics section, Smiley's People by John le Carré is... It's almost the only one that he writes that's actually about two dueling sets of tradecraft running operations. And Le Carre obviously spent some time in, uh, I think, in MI5. I don't believe it was MI6. But he he was at least familiar enough with the way that that world works that his, his tradecraft uh, has the ring of truth. And also, certainly if you're doing it as a game source, is uh, unimpeachable. And also, of course, Smiley's People is a terrific novel, so it's well worth reading on that level. But I really haven't run across sort of a, you know, um, you know, rough guide to tradecraft or so you want to be a GRU agent type book that I am comfortable recommending, you know, completely. I'm not even super comfortable recommending Spycraft, although between the fact that it will have a lovely thing on the technology section and... And apparently Keebler Elves recommend it. And apparently Keebler Elves do recommend it. And they know from diabetes and uh, tradecraft. So really, this is, uh, if you're looking for contemporary sources on uh, the world of espionage, you're looking more for uh, articles, uh, both articles, I guess, journal in journalistic circles and maybe academic circles, or is yeah. there just uh, is something where we just don't know enough and we're going to have to stick with the fictional cliches and uh, kind of make it up? If you have a decent research library or academic library, I'm certain that there are academic articles that you can look at. The CIA actually has a pretty good um, website for their library that has a lot of CIA, you know, redacted or released documents that uh, the CIA's historians provide about how various operations went or what sort of requirements they had in the past. And again, by the time the CIA has redacted it and released it to you, a lot of the, the, the really gritty detail isn't there anymore. But in terms of big picture stuff, you can look at the way that the CIA was operating in, you know, South America in the 1960s or something, or there will be a, the CIA, uh, they have, they have a really snarky book reviewer who likes to review other books about spies. And from the tone of his reviews, you can sometimes say, well, that guy got that wrong because the CIA guy said that about it. But that's a lot of work that I would not necessarily call that a beginning tradecraft bookshelf. I would say that that's someone who really wants to dig into it. They need to start 
um, you know, hitting that CIA uh, library website, or they need to start going to their reference library and saying, what have you got in terms of, you know, practical lectures on the topic or that uh, research papers that have been done? Right. And I guess also knowing what's going on uh, both in the WikiLeaks and the Snowden case tells you a lot about where the intelligence community is at now, because we certainly get the impression that there's a, a lower reliance on running assets and networks in part because of the, the cultural barrier and part just because structurally a loosely affiliated network of terrorists uh, doesn't have the organization to uh, penetrate and subvert the way that the uh, Soviets did during the Cold War. So it's, uh, I think, seems to be more of a case of uh, electronic surveillance than, than human surveillance now. And that's one of the critiques that's been uh, made about uh, what Western intelligence agencies are doing, is that they would rather be scooping up what they can scoop up, which is the uh, electronic uh, trails of everybody in the world than uh, the harder work of uh, finding agents to run. Or maybe that's just a cover story that they're telling us in order to lull the guys they're running against uh, into a false sense of security. One, one hopes that is true, but I'm afraid that it's much more likely that the general knock on certainly the U.S. intelligence apparatus. This is not true of the British. It's not true of the Israelis. Uh, the U.S. apparatus is has been very technically focused and much less human focused. Um, certainly since the church hearings in the 70s where they were, you know, saying, why, you've got spies who are dealing with terrible people. We shouldn't be doing that. And rather than say, that's kind of the spy's job, everyone in the CIA said, you're absolutely right. And, you know, cut the clandestine operations arm off at the knees. And so by now there's an institutional culture within the American intelligence Apparatus, And again, that's what Snowden betrayed, and that's what the WikiLeaks guys, although the WikiLeaks is mostly State Department cables, they're talking about the Americans. There has not been, for example, a, um, uh, a, a WikiLeaks of Mossad documents, and there probably never will be for a lot of reasons. But other intelligence operations do maintain much more uh, focused human, and what has happened certainly in the War on Terror is that the United States CIA has subcontracted intelligence operations that have good human programs. So what they would do is they will partner up with Israel or they'll partner up with Jordan or they'll partner up with um, uh, Bulgaria or Romania or one of these other countries that are used to running agents in the old-fashioned human way because they don't have trillion-dollar spy satellites and giant NSA computers. And all they can get is human. And the CIA will basically just fund an operation run by their spies and then they'll share intel in theory. Right. And culturally, it's it's easier to do that because uh, there are uh, fewer Americans who uh, comfortably speak a whole bunch of languages. And mm -hmm. also the way that the <laughs> bureaucratic structure of the CIA and its sister agencies are is that y you don't want to have to go and live in a dangerous country and do dangerous things. That doesn't actually advance your career the no. way that sticking yeah. to a desk job uh, does, which uh, I suggest a uh, structural failure that uh, Wild Bill Donovan would uh, have no truck with it. <laughs> well, that's one of the many reasons that they shuffled Wild Bill Donovan out of the picture early, is because uh, once Yale people had a choice of going overseas or staying in uh, the Excella Corridor, they voted pretty much unanimously to not go overseas. Yes, there's a lot <laughs> less uh, drinking your own urine if you stick to uh, Langley. <laughs> Yeah. So the um uh, so yeah, Wild Bill I'm I'm afraid was fighting a losing battle even 
you know, in the forties and certainly would be, um, uh, spinning in his grave, uh, or one hopes assembling another team of dead super American spy patriots, uh, to, um, uh, to avenge him. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 the culture has completely changed from the old OSS days, which is another reason that reading memoirs of spies who are active in those days doesn't really tell you an awful lot about how spying is done. And because, um, you know, the British actually have censorship and denotices and things, their successful human guys don't write memoirs. Um, and we, I really think, don't have a lot of them. And if the Americans did, it would be that one chapter would be the fight over the photocopier with <laughs> the guys down the hall. That's right. Well, I guess uh, since the uh, answer to that question is uh, there Redacted. isn't much of a bookshelf, <laughs> I guess it's time that we uh, move on to our next segment. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Joshua Weiss asks Ken and Robin, I come from a miniatures gaming as opposed to role-playing background, and no RPG feels complete without painted minis for all the PCs and any enemies they encounter. However, according to the RPG manuals I have acquired after hearing them mentioned on this podcast, combat seems to be less grid or hex-based and more narrative in focus. So I'd like to ask, do minis add to or detract from the modern RPG experience? Man, I wish that this podcast and its associated RPG manuals were the totality of the modern RPG experience, but sadly, I don't think we can make that statement. Robin, what do you think about minis? Right. So, if first of all, if we're talking about the modern RPG experience, the most popular game right now is uh, Pathfinder, a, mm -hmm. an F20 game, a version of D&D. Uh, 13th Age, another F20 uh, up-and-comer, is much more loosey-goosey, but still, uh, when you talk to Rob and Jonathan about what monsters they want uh, you to create for them, they want you to pick things that have existing miniatures, so even in that much sort of loosey-goosey, free-of-the-grid play, there's still the assumption that you're going to bring miniatures out on the table and uh, and put them out there and have them and, and use them the way that we have uh, use miniatures in gaming because, of course, the grid didn't really uh, become a thing in role playing until fairly late. That both uh, first and second edition D and D sort of suggests that you have miniatures when you need them and you put them out there and you can sort of visualize what's going on tactically. But they're not uh, hard baked into the mechanics the way that they are into third edition and therefore into Pathfinder. So for most uh, people playing now, uh, miniatures are are still as much an option, if not more so, than ever. Uh, for more narrative-based systems, uh, I think this is the, the question that uh, the questioner is trying to get at, though, is uh, how can you use miniatures in a more uh, narrative-style uh, play, and do they uh, add anything or, or do they detract? And I sort of feel a couple of different ways about miniatures, that um, in Feng Shui, for example... I think it's important, and, and the idea with Feng Shui combat, if you're not familiar with it, is that it's much more verbal, and the fun of it is about describing the crazy ways that you're successfully hitting or successfully dodging your enemies than in trying to work out exactly where you are in relationship to the furniture and all the other people, that it's sort of creating the idea of a 
quick cut style fight where you're moving from combatant to combatant and the spatial relationships are not necessarily as clear as they would be if you're looking at a grid. So in that, I want you to be imagining the scene in your head rather than having a sort of a top-down omniscient view of where everybody is to have more of an impressionistic uh, imagined view of uh, where uh, your uh, character is and that a view can sort of shift with the, the timing of the shot cost system. I suppose it could still be fun, though, to have, you know, a version of your character that you uh, have to represent what you look like, to remind yourself of what you look like. You could even use that as a token on your shot ca cost counter as you determine uh, where in the round you are, because Feng Shui fights have sequences and then they're subdivided into actions, and you might act you know, three or four times in the course of a sequence and you have to keep track and exactly what slice or shot of the sequence you're doing that. So you could have a miniature and move them along the shot cost counter. The uh, GM needs to track all of the uh, enemies. And if the GM has a ton of modern action style miniatures, they could definitely pull them out, show you what they look like, and then put them on the shot cost uh, counter. So that would be a useful thing that helps you remember who's who and, and when you're acting and gives you a bit of a visual jolt of information without removing the part of the experience where you are seeing what's going on in your head instead of seeing a symbolic representation of it at the table. I think that in my experience, I ran Call of Cthulhu back in the 80s when everyone ran everything with miniatures. And so I ran, I used miniatures. There was those great little Ralpartha guys and the even greater Ralpartha Partha monsters. And when I didn't have miniatures, I would still put dice out on the table and, you know, they would be at six while the monster was at full hit points, and I'd slowly move it down, or the more often the, the gangster was at full hit points, and I'd slowly move it down to indicate damage being done. And that provided, I think, more information usefully than just describing the combat without so constraining it that everyone started worrying about flanking bonuses and, and range and things like that. Uh, and I think that's the biggest mistake uh, that you can do with the miniatures in a in a less tactically focused game is try and because you've got minis out there now you have to make it tactically focused now you have to start thinking about you know ranges and does it drop off at this and do you get a bonus from that and in a horror game especially in Call of Cthulhu not knowing exactly where the monster is is so much part of the so much part of the story and so much part of the actual point of the of the game that over defining it is the bigger problem than underdefining it. But I find that miniatures tend to focus people's attention on combat. They tend to get uh, people sort of engaged in thinking about what choices they're making in the moment as opposed to sort of uh, abstractly considering, well, I'd already do this or that. They see a miniature and it somehow makes them think about the combat in the moment. And I think that that's just a, you know, a, a natural consequence of having the little guys out there. I enjoy miniatures. I don't own as many miniatures as I could, uh, mostly because there's only so much room in one's house nowadays. Uh, but I am, I am fond of them. And I think that they, especially in a game where, you know, say if you're running a GURPS game or you're running a, a game that is, uh, say, nice black agents, you might want to do a little, um, miniatures if you've got a battle mat. You know, here's what the warehouse looks like. Here's what the, the vampire castle looks like. Here's what this or that or the other thing looks like. And as long as you don't um, uh, hold yourself down to individual grid squares, you can get a lot of information really fast out of a miniature combat. 
that you can't get necessarily solely from from verbal narration. And so I I, I kind of enjoy uh, seeing them and using them. And I certainly even now, you know, even if I don't have a miniature, I'll draw out a a, a, a tactical encounter a lot of times, and people would put little X's on the board to or on the piece of paper to indicate where their character is or 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 their starship or whatever. So I think that um, miniatures used uh, responsibly uh, almost always add to, and only in very rare occasions do they detract from uh, my game experience. And responsible use is no more than two miniatures a day. Exactly. No more than two a day, and obviously, if symptoms persist, uh, consult a story gamer. One of the indie games that does use uh, miniatures is uh, Gregor Hutton's 316, where Mm -hmm. he plays Space Marines, and his uh, very abstract way of running combat after combat after uh, combat in a sort of an ironic stripping down of the whole uh, space marine thing is uh, uses miniatures in order to adjudicate that. And as an exercise, you could think of, well, you know, there are lots of other story games that take props and uh, and use them. Uh, Dread by uh, Appy Ravichal famously uses a Jenga construction that you... Uh, and horrible things happen when the uh, structure collapses. So mm-hmm. uh, if you were to think of, uh, you know, what if you have a whole box of miniatures? How would you make a story game out of those? Uh, because it, I think the temptation is it's hard to sort of wedge them into play experiences where they don't belong. I can't think of how to really use them in, in drama system except to sort of, you could put them on the table, you know, move your miniature next to the uh, miniature of your scene partner, but that doesn't really do anything. Um, but if you created a game where you had a big... A blind uh, box of miniatures, and your your way you created your character at the beginning was you pull a miniature out of the uh, out of the thing, and that's your your character. And then you have to describe them in story terms based on their visual references, right? That that's the first thing you do is you know what your character looks like as a miniature, and then uh, throughout play, uh, it may well be that the uh, GM doesn't know who the opposition are, and they're actually the random monsters are literally randomly physically. Uh, pulled from a pile and there would be some sort of function that, uh, you know, you would have rules for, you know, what happens if you draw the boar miniature or what happens if you draw the goblin and how this all works and uh, how that would uh, create a storyline rather than creating a tactical environment the way that we were used to. Yeah, I think that, you know, if you're if you're given the goal of I have miniatures and I want a story game about them, um, I think that that is a different sort of a thing, then I have a game and I would like to bring miniatures into it. I, I agree with you that having miniatures for something like, you know, My Life with Master or whatever is is relatively, you know, beside the point. I think that you can maybe start productively bringing them into something like uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, though. Anything where the, there is a fundamental combat moment that happens and the number of your foes has a mechanical effect on, on what's happening. That's where miniatures can start coming out, although po- poker chips obviously could uh, do about the same sort of thing. But uh, a poker chip, you can't uh, have it fall over when you shoot them. Right, exactly. You, you have to just take it off the, off the board. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, like, well, like I was saying, there's, there's sort of an aesthetic focus that happens when you put a miniature out on the table. I guess the other downside is that if all you've got is orcs and you put them out because you don't have Deep One miniatures and you're like, the Deep Ones are all here and the players are like, those are orcs, not Deep Ones they feel out of the moment. So the wrong miniature, and obviously your mileage will vary as to what is wrong, you know, maybe you've got a bunch of uh, French grenadiers from your Napoleonic set, 
and these are the deep ones. And there you go. Uh, that is, again, perhaps going to cause more problems. Yeah, so a wrong visual cue, I would argue, is much worse than a than no visual cue. So I think that that's, that's something to, to, to sort of keep an eye out for. But again, uh, it sounds like if your situation is, I've got so many wonderful miniatures and I wish I could still use them, it's just, uh, it, it's, it should be easy enough that if what you've got is a bunch of owl bears to come up with some sort of circumstance in which you're going to be dealing with something that an owl bear is a good miniature for. And if you've uh, not got a bunch of gangster miniatures and you're running a gangster game, then go out and buy more gangster miniatures. I mean, don't let us stop you. So I think um, we've answered that as, as well as we can. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts on uh, miniatures in the more narrative-driven side of things? I think that it would be an interesting challenge to... I mean, you, when you were saying uh, drama system and miniatures, I immediately flashed on a notion of something in which the characters can only interact if their miniatures are in the same space. So sort of like a Kill Dr. Lucky as, as, as a drama system game, where instead of Kill Dr. Lucky, it's Persuade Dr. Lucky or Beg Dr. Lucky or something. And so you're moving your miniatures around in a different game mechanical way, but that when those miniatures come into contact, there is a drama system moment. So instead of the characters calling the scene, the board game component or miniatures game component of it calls the scene. That probably isn't necessarily robust enough to make a whole game about it, but on the other hand, it may be so strongly flavored that you really want to make sure that your uh, series pitch is is that kind of constrained, that you know your characters are in a giant cube put together by malevolent aliens or something that really makes it so that uh, positioning is an important uh, question in a, in, a, in a drama story, which it almost never is. Uh, well, speaking of positioning, I uh, see a familiar device uh, positioned off to the side here, and uh, perhaps we should proceed toward it and initiate our final segment. And that device is Ken's Time Machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses uses to send Ken back in time. And in this case, uh, something we haven't revealed before about uh, Ken's Time Machine is that it has a mythic time switch. And uh, we're not entirely sure yet uh, whether it sends you back into the uh, collective unconscious or into an actual magical universe or into the historical events that inspired myth, but we're going to find out by experimentally flipping the switch and sending Ken back to stop Cersei from turning Odysseus's men into pigs. And Ken, as you've done your uh, research into uh, this uh, classic Greek myth, part of the Odyssey, uh, what uh, are you expecting to find when you uh, go back and uh, try and protect Odysseus's men from uh, ending up on the bacon plate? Well, I mean, a lot of it is going to depend, like you say, on to what extent it sends us to the historical basis for the story, to the extent there is a historical basis. One can certainly make the argument, and plenty of people have, that there is no more historical basis for the Odyssey than there is for the good, the bad, and the ugly, that it basically takes a situation that everyone was vaguely familiar with and puts the story that Homer wants to tell into it. But there, uh, it's more fun to pretend that there's a historical basis for it, and certainly uh, Homer is working in a time when there are plenty of people sailing around the Mediterranean and getting into all kinds of hilarious trouble. So, I guess, you know, do I expect to see uh, Mycenaean warriors perhaps 
blown away from raiding Egypt, uh, as indeed uh, Homer says that they do. And historically, we know that the Sea Peoples did in the 11th century, or in or 12th century BC, rather. So a bunch of guys in bronze helmets with big horsehair crests stumbling off of a uh, remarkably uh, seaworthy uh, galley. Or do I expect to see, you know, sort of a bunch of guys, uh, extras from a Steve Reeves movie uh, show up? Or is it um, a, a, myth- a mythical or past in which their actions are pretty much irrelevant because the only people who matter are heroes and they exist solely to sort of wharf things up and show what uh, Odysseus is faced with? I'm definitely packing moly, which is the uh, flower that uh, Circe uh, fears and does not uh, have any power over because uh, I have no particular wish to be a pig, uh, or any bigger of a one than I am now. The question of what exactly Moly is, is the sort of fun thing that causes Homeric uh, scholars to argue amongst themselves. But uh, whatever it is, I'm, I'm going to bring it. So you're going to have to do like a separate trip to go back and find what Moly is. Yeah, right. And no. then get some. Exactly, then... right. Basically, there's going to be a debrief of Odysseus back in Ithaca after he's, you know, sort of you know, work the kinks out and he's telling the story and I'll, you know, show up and we'll have a couple of drinks and we'll be, so what, which moly exactly are we talking about? Is it, um, uh, is it Snowdrop? It, do, do I have to get it from, uh, the god Helios? What's the story on the moly? And then once I know what that is, then I can, I can go back and, and, uh, hang out with, uh, Circe on Aia, which is her, uh, magical island. Well, uh, why don't you, uh, flip the switch and then come back to exactly this moment in time and, uh, then you can tell us uh, what happened and uh, how mythological the events were. Okay, basically what happened in the myth is that Odysseus uh, has, from somewhere, yet again got a crew, and he has landed on the island of Aea, and when his uh, crew show up and, and generally behave like uh, <laughs> like pirates, they are reduced uh, more or less symbolically to their animalistic nature by Circe, who is a uh, sorceress, and may or may not have begun as a goddess of proto-Greeks or pre-Greeks. Um, her, uh, it's it's uh, very possible that she began as a a uh, avatar or previous version of Hecate, who gets sort of the Circe part gets carved off and becomes a, a, a witch, and the rest of her becomes Hecate. But uh, she she shows up, and in the mythical world, you know, she you know says her magic words, and everyone turns into pigs except. Odysseus, who has Moly, and me. And in the less mythical world, I suspect that there is a sort of Robert Gravesian moment where everyone is drinking the, uh, the, the sacred beverage that she prepares. And sure enough, it's full of stupefactant and hallucinogens and leaves the men rolling around and grunting and pawing at themselves. And only Odysseus, who has taken the, the purgative, which perhaps Moly is in this case, uh, is safe from that activity. So is this just a simple uh, matter of uh, giving moly to all of the, the crew members before you hit the island, or do you need to... Uh... That is that is certainly the, the sort of straightforward and simple way of keeping them from uh, making pigs of themselves or having pigs made of themselves. Uh, that is the, the prescribed anti-Circe element. I think that, you know, the interesting thing there is that once you've done that, you sort of cut off... Circe's uh, and Odysseus's dalliance, which may not do me any favors when I see Odysseus again later, but on the other hand, it does mean that he has a crew for the next uh, problem, which uh, would be the Scylla and Charybdis, uh, so he's going to lose them again on that one, unless uh, perhaps I can also bring him back a 
<laughs> a map of the Mediterranean and say, here's a better idea than sailing through Scylla and Charybdis. Maybe go um, uh, around the other way. So th- this is an interesting path. So you're uh, uh, helping him uh, with all of these uh, obstacles. Uh, are, are there other obstacles that you can uh, help him with along his way to, to shorten his uh, his ten year journey? Well, the trouble with shortening his ten year journey again it, again this depends on exactly how mythical our setting is is because if I do too much to help him then that gets Poseidon mad at me and I'm not sure that uh, Ken's time machine is necessarily Poseidon proof <laughs> and and I would hesitate to to take it to a conclusion one way or the other but in general one would like to see Odysseus get home earlier, if only to keep his uh, substance from being eaten up by the suitors of his wife, Penelope. And f- fewer dudes for him to have to kill at the fewer end. Fewer dudes for him to have to kill off. Maybe he won't be so mad as to kill all the servants who have been serving the, servitor, the, the suitors, which is what he does in the original version of the story, which seems a little harsh to our uh, uh, modern sensibilities. But if our modern sensibilities aren't why I'm playing around with the time machine that I don't know why. I, I think that um, saving the lives of Odysseus's servants is certainly a worthy goal. It may or may not be something that Time Incorporated wants to justify the budget for. I think one of the real things that they would want me to do, in addition to charting whether or not this is uh, going to the land of myth or the land of uh, semi-plausible reconstructed history, is to sort of actually chart the Homeric Mediterranean or the Odyssean Mediterranean. You know, where is the island of Aeia, which is what Circe's island is? There's a great deal of um, uh, debate about that, although the Romans figured out that it was a cave, or actually one of three caves on the Tyrrhenian Sea coast. Uh, one of the caves is actually on Ponza, where our buddy Benito Mussolini was being kept. So there is a strong temptation to show up, bring Circe forward, and and have Scorzani and Mussolini and all of the um, uh, uh, associated personnel of that previous adventure turned into pigs <laughs> and then crash them in the uh, Fiesler Storch. Uh, that would add a, a bit of flair to that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, once you've got magic pig devices, then I think this really the sky's the limit for how much fun you can have with it. Uh, a lot of that depends on how mobile Circe is and how interested she is in turning people to pigs sort of on a freelance basis. Well, um, what do we know about uh, uh, Cersei's uh, uh, motivations? How would you uh, succeed in uh, getting her to go along with your plans? Presumably she's uh, got all of the uh, psychotropic uh, beverages uh, she needs on the <laughs> island already. Uh, so how do you uh, persuade her to become an agent of Ken's uh, of Time Incorporated? Of Time Incorporated. How do I, what's the recruiting bonus? Well, um, traditionally... Circe is interested in only a couple of things. One of them is sort of freedom of action. She's got that sort of... um, A lot of the Greek uh, horror stories turn out to be about women who don't want to have anything to do with Greeks. (laughs) <laughs> if you if you look at the Amazons, that um, uh, that, that that is exactly the supervillains that the that a horribly misogynistic culture comes up with. They're women who have weapons and don't like us. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps, uh, often that's a, that sort of projection is a measure of a, a, an awareness of guilt. <laughs> yes. I, I, well, I'm not sure how aware they are. I mean, the Greeks, after all, had to have Socrates show up and tell them to know themselves until they poisoned him for it. Um, I, I think that uh, well, the other I think thing... they, they had the awareness of if women were really buff and had spears, we'd be in trouble. Yes, um, I think one of the other uh, things that uh, Circe is interested in uh, historically, or at least mythically, is knowledge. She sends Odysseus down into the afterworld to consult with uh, Tiresias and the other 
um, and sort of to be her necromantic buddy. So I think that, you know, my, my, uh, my association with a consulting occultist might perhaps, uh, provide her with, uh, an incentive. I, as a happily married man, I can't really be dallying on her island and giving her a son, which is the other thing she seems to want out of Odysseus. He has, uh, he has a way with him, uh, that I probably shouldn't be attempting to emulate. Well, and he doesn't necessarily need his men to be turned into swine in order to, uh, to, to get down with her. They're not, uh, Right. Crashing is seen to that extent. No, I, I think that after the after the conclusion of the dalliance, in some versions of the story, she turns his men back, and that's why he has a crew to be eaten by Scylla when he sails past Scylla in lieu of Charybdis later on in, in, in the Odyssey. There is actually, apparently there's one of the guys who just stays on the boat and doesn't get turned into a pig, which is, you know, I think maybe I might want to recruit that guy for Time Incorporated, Eurolocus, instead of Circe, because while... You He's know, the player character. Turn... Goes, Why am I motivated to go on that island after yeah, all? That island seems terribly dangerous, just like all the other islands we've gone to. <laughs> you didn't even write this campaign. This is just a bunch of monster encounters. This is a TPK game. I hate you, Homer. Um, and, and so, you know, knowing that the island might or might not be dangerous and turn you into a pig is also a useful skill. I'm pretty for sure your locus um, uh, should should be another time incorporated agent. Um, I, I think that getting Circe off of her island is going to come down to, to, to knowledge and power. I mean, that's, that seems to be what she's motivated by, you know, whether you look at her as sort of a, a badly treated feminist uh, goddess or whether you look at her as a uh, evil witch. Both ways, that's kind of what she wants. And uh, Time Incorporated can give her knowledge, but in terms of power, I suspect she may not want to only turn people into pigs who Time Incorporated says so, given that even I occasionally question the, the wisdom of my, uh, of my um, uh, corporate supervisors. So you don't want to uh, set her up with her own uh, uh, proto-feminist superstate or anything? Um, the thing about uh, <laughs> matriarchies, there's a, there's a great line from, uh, I forget who it is, it's, uh, but it's, it was a, she was a University of Chicago uh, professor of, at the Divinity School and uh, Anthropology. And she had the great line that she would give in her beginning class for the uh, divinity school people who would all show up to hear about goddess worship. And she would say, if you ever find yourself in a practicing matriarchy, run like hell. Because they're all very, very bloody-minded and dangerous to the people who are part of that religion. There's just uh, a, a number of, of characteristics that certainly are true of Near Eastern matriarchies that uh, I, I'm not sure that I want to encourage being set up as rivals to good old misogynist Greece or even um, uh, good old stultified Rome. As, as much fun as it might be to have an island of Amazons somewhere in the West, I think I'm, I'm comfortable with uh, where the Spanish put it in California rather than um, anywhere in uh, the Mediterranean. So by changing the story so that uh, not only do Odysseus's men not get turned into pigs, which turns out not to be such a big deal, especially if she turns them back, but shortening his journey and making it less brutal, does that create any sort of uh, cultural shifts that uh, affect contemporary culture because we've changed this uh, key myth? Um, I think that in terms of changes to the Circe myth moving forward in culture, I think what we 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 are mostly just impoverishing ourselves because the myth has you know such a obvious effect on you know sort of the the notion of your of your inner animal um if it uh, sidelines freud it might be worth doing but i'm pretty sure there are simpler ways of doing that ironically including giving him freudian therapy as a young man 
but the but the notion of Circe as a witch uh, is more fun, I think, than the notion of having another you know eighty guys or so uh, wandering around. If I do this as part of shortening the Odyssey, then taking the Odyssey out of culture has, I think, a bitter, bigger effect. If all it does is short-circuit James Joyce, I would be surprised. I think that you would wind up losing an awful lot of um, the, the frontier uh, story. Uh, I, I alluded to The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but a lot of the sort of the, the quintessential road movie, if by shortening the Odyssey down and saving the lives of those servants, I've ended up uh, destroying both the road movie and the Western, I will feel very, very bad about myself. And no amount of moly and uh, bacon is going to make me feel better. Mmm, moly and bacon. Uh, well, I think we've uh, essayed our experimental uh, journey into myth time. Is there another myth that you would uh, sooner have Time Incorporated uh, drop you into? I think that part of the thing about, about changing myths is that most myths are, you know, be, be just because of the sort of evolutionary quality of how they're built up over time and then being assembled usually by a genius like uh, Hesiod or Ovid into something that's a really good story, to change them makes it makes it sort of feel bad. It would be nice, uh, for example, to save Hercules's life uh, and let him continue to uh, go around beating up monsters and being a good guy. But again, everyone's got to die sometime, and and Hercules's death is sort of apropos and appropriate. I, th I think that there are more modern myths that are uh, more wired into history, things like King Arthur that might be worth uh, going around. And I think once I'm allowed to touch my time machine uh, without uh, supervision and play with the myth switch, I might be heading there next as opposed to staying around in classical antiquity or going even further back into the really dangerous, scary Sumerian myths and such. Uh, well, if that isn't a, a premonition of a, another topic and therefore an end of this podcast, I don't think I've ever heard one. It's as though I know how the time machine controls work by now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us in paint and tiny brushes by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or Homeric epic poem by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>